Gospel of Luke 20:27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the, the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Uh, We we have skipped ahead to the very last week in Jesus' life. This is Passion Week. This story takes place in the temple courts as Jesus is being barraged by a series of questions from the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're all trying to trip him up and trying to discredit him in front of the crowd. Uh, The Pharisees and Sadducees, they were not natural allies. Uh, They were actually hated enemies. They were on complete opposite ends of the theological and political spectrum But the one thing they had in common was their mutual hatred of Jesus. And uh, now it's the Sadducees' turn at the plate. They concoct a very strange story about seven brothers, each who were married to the same woman and were supposed to produce presumably a male heir. Uh, Seven brothers who are very dense, who do not realize they're dealing with a dangerous woman. (laughs) I think if I was about brother number four, I I would have headed to the hills. You know, this is a black widow situation, yeah. Yeah, And the, the question is, the situation is entirely farcical, but we can be very grateful that um, Jesus took the question seriously. He did not reject it as entirely absurd, but by answering this question, what he does is he tells us things about heaven and about the afterlife we never would have known if uh, if it weren't for this conversation that uh, is recorded here. So I'm very grateful that Jesus took their absurd question seriously. Uh, What do you need to know about the Sadducees? Not much. I don't want to give a lot of background on them. Uh, You need to know that they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. They only believed in the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And when they read Genesis through through Deuteronomy, they could find nothing in those five books about the afterlife or the immortality of the soul or any of that. They didn't believe in the resurrection uh, of the dead because they couldn't find it in the, the book of Moses. But what they're referring to in this passage is a custom which is called leveret. I think that's the way you pronounce it. 
L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, lever <laughs> marriage. Apparently, levere is the Latin word for brother-in-law. Lever at marriage, Deuteronomy chapter 25. It was a very merciful provision that was made for widows back in the, in the land of Israel. I mean, you think of, they were uh, an agricultural, you know, agrarian, patriarchal society. And if you have a wife, a woman who ends up, um, her husband dies and she doesn't have children, then she's in a very precarious position because she doesn't have kids to take care of her. And she's probably not going to be at the top of everyone's list to, to uh, remarry because she's been married prior and there's no male heir to pass along the fam- family inheritance to. So Deuteronomy 25 is a very merciful provision which says that if a man dies childless, the brother is supposed to take the widow into the family and to care for her and to try and raise up um, a child, a much more merciful way of dealing with widows than was the custom in their day. So the Sadducees concoct a reductio ad absurdum argument. They concoct this. They basically say, okay, consider this situation. See how silly it is to believe in the resurrection? Who does that? I mean, can you imagine a woman walking into heaven and there at heaven's gates are her seven previous husbands. You know, who's going to believe that? It's, it's utterly absurd. It makes no sense. Now, 2,000 years later, um, I don't think we find that argument uh, terribly persuasive. But it, it does pose, I really think it poses a legitimate point, And that is, if we're going to accept the resurrection, we do have to give an account for people who have been married more than one time in this life. Now, we don't have leveret marriage today, but there's many people, many people here this morning who either, you know, you remarried after the death of a spouse or you remarried after divorce. My guess is that probably 80 to 90% of all people will end up in this life being married to more than one person, either by virtue of the death of a spouse or divorce. And so, you know, we have to be able to answer this. What do we say to people who have been married? You know, what, what's heaven going to be like? Which man or, man or woman um, are you supposed to be with? How does Jesus answer that question? He, he answers it very simply. He says, uh, no marriage in heaven. You know, no marriage. I mean, there is marriage, of course. There's the marriage between Jesus and his church, the bride and, and the groom, but it's not the normal marriage which we think of. Verse 35. Look with me. 35. Those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. It just kind of like feels like a dagger in your heart if you have a happy marriage, doesn't it? Like, honestly, for me, that is one of the most disappointing, disappointing verses in all of the Bible. Um, there's no marriage in heaven? I mean, Jesus, why? You know, uh, for, for, for some of us, that is the, like, the greatest source of happiness we have in this life. I mean, apart from our children. And, and maybe even greater still, you know, the, the greatest source of happiness in my life has been Aaron. <laughs> and 
And I don't want to give that up. When you, when you so deeply love somebody, like the way that a husband and wife do, um, you, don't want to give it, you don't want to give it up. And so I, I, I told the first service, I don't remember the very first time I read that verse. But I, I know whenever I did, it uh, disappointed me and it surprised me. I mean, aren't you genuinely surprised that something as good as marriage doesn't continue on into the next life. I, I, I was shocked by that. Um, and it's not that I'm doubting the Lord, I mean, or saying that he's wrong. I, I, know that, I know that he's right. One of the most common criticisms that non-Christians make about the Christian faith and about Christianity, they tell us that our doctrine of the afterlife, our doctrine of heaven, is a psychological crutch that's just, you know, basically trying to help people get through death. You, you just wish, wish fulfillment, right? All you're doing is projecting your hopes, taking the good things of this life and projecting your hopes into the future, and that's what helps us get through, through death. You know, do you realize that what Jesus is saying here, he really explodes that criticism. Because if the early Christians were making heaven up, don't you think that they would have included you know, eternal marital bliss as part of it? Don't you think that, that they would include sex as part of it? I mean, everything down here is about sex, isn't it? I mean, it feels that way. Freud tells us that's the case. No, but Jesus, his vision of what heaven is like is entirely non-sexual. It is not erotic, it is, is not sensual. There's no, there's no marriage, which means there's no making babies. And there's, there's no eros. There's no sensuality or sexuality. What I find very interesting is that there are worldviews and religions out there which make sex as paramount, paramount in the afterlife. What are we talking about? Muslim, Islam. Yeah. Yeah, if you die as a martyr in the cause of, of Islam, I mean... Seventy virgins are waiting for you up there with translucent skin, and they're the finest of wines. I mean, that's the, that is Muslim eschatology. That's a, a big part of it, at least. Who else? Who else makes sex uh, primary in the afterlife? Yeah, Mormons. Mormons do. LDS do. You know, if you have if you get married in one of the temples and have your marriage sealed in one of the temples here, then you are. It is together, together forever and ever you know, where you, you know, procreate and make spirit babies to inhabit future worlds. And don't you see, like Jesus, he directly contradicts that. Um, and so, no, what I would say to my non-Christian friends is, is, no, heaven is not me projecting my fantasies. Because if I was projecting my fantasies, I promise you I'd be married to Aaron forever. No, this is heaven. I believe in heaven because... This is what has been revealed. This is what we receive. Even if what is revealed and what we receive is a disappointment, even though I know it's not going to be a disappointment. <laughs> I mean, I know, I, I know that there's going to be the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we're going to be married to Christ. And I mean, I believe all of that, and, and yes. Um, but still, Jesus' statement surprises me that marriage won't continue in, into the future. Secondly, 
If there is no marriage in heaven, then what are our relationships going to be like? What are our relationships going to be like? The way I want to try to illustrate this, those of you who do not know me very well or the Cheneys very well, I have four teenagers in the house at the same time, (laughs) which is challenging. And one of the conversations we often have around our home goes something like this. It goes, Mom, Dad, I want to go out tonight. And we reply, oh, great. Where do you want to go out to? And they say, I don't know. (laughs) And we say, what do you mean you don't know? (laughs) Doesn't everybody have a destination? You know, don't you have a schedule? Don't you have a goal? Aren't you a goal-oriented person? You know, they say, I don't know. Well, okay, how long are you going to be out for tonight? When are you coming home? And their answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, what are you going to do tonight? I assume that you don't know, right? (laughs) I think, what's the matter with these teenage people? Um, How how can you not know where you're going to go or for how long you're going to go there and do it? And then I realize that for a teenager, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them where or what or for how long, the only thing that matters to them is the, it's the who. It's the who. We're going out tonight just because, just because of the who. Because I want to be with these people. I don't care where we go or what we do. Who needs, who needs a destination when you're with people who you love to be with? When I tell you that our relationships in heaven are going to be analogous to friendships, for many of you, if, if you're a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old here this morning, you, that, may, that may seem kind of bland. Yeah, our relationships are going to be friendships. You don't even have many of those any longer. But what I want you to do, I want you to remember, what did, what did friendships mean to you back when you were 10? What did friendships mean to you back when you were 16? They meant the world to you. (laughs) Your whole life, all of your your joy was caught up in in your friendships. And yeah, it certainly shouldn't sound dull if I say that our relationships are going to be infinitely better than the best friendships on earth. Um, You know, our reflex assumption should be that if we hear that there's something different in heaven than is, than is down here, or there's something missing in heaven than, than we have down here, our reflex assumption ought to be that that, that something that is missing is going to be replaced with something that's better. Now, Jesus says there won't be marriage in heaven. And, uh, okay, I thought of several implications. What are some impl- implications of us not being married in heaven? Uh, you know, I think we... We are guilty of doing this in the church. We hold up marriage and the nuclear family as the ideal, as, as the way to true and lasting happiness. When Jesus says that there's not going to be marriage for eternity, isn't he saying that the marriage is really not the ideal? It's not all that it's cracked up to be? No, I will, Singleness is not this inferior, incomplete state, and marriage is not the ultimate. Um, 
uh, how about we do this? Those of you who are singles here in our church, I want to ask you a series of statements. Have you ever heard these before? Number one, have you ever heard, don't worry, dear. Don't worry, dear. You'll get married someday. Number two, God has that special someone waiting for you. He's, he, he's just preparing you. He's just got a little bit more work to do on you before he brings that someone into your life. Number three, so uh, where's your husband? Is he, you're not married? How old are you? <laughs> now, I confess, I'm guilty of the same thing. Aaron's college roommate, she lived with a, a sweet, sweet, dear girl for two years. And I think, I don't know, Aaron was talking with her on the phone just recently uh, and she's still not married. It's kind of strange. They live together. We have a child who's about to go off to college. She's still not married. And I caught myself uh, kind of asking the question, well, why? Why isn't she married? Is something wrong? Why? She's such a great girl. Why? See, I, I, fall, I fall into the same kind of trap. If you're not married, then there's got to be something wrong with you. No. That, no, Jesus... Jesus rebukes that. He, he rebukes that. He says marriage is not ultimate. He says that the myth of finding someone who completes me, you know, the, the complete me myth, we hear it often in wedding receptions, I finally found the right person who completes me, and now our life together will be perfect. He says, no, 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 no. No, that's not ultimate. It's wrong to assume so. It's wrong for Christian churches to keep perpetuating that. Um, on their the single people uh, it, it, within. You know, where I want to f- conclude is verse 37, if you'll look there with me. Verse 37. Jesus' answer to the Sadducees is peculiar. <laughs> it's really a peculiar way of going about arguing for the resurrection, the bodily resurrection from the dead. Let's read verse 37. He says, he refers to in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise for he calls the Lord. Um, he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So what Jesus is doing here is he's referring to one of the five books of the Bible that the Sadducees actually thought were the Bible. He's going back to the book of Exodus to the revelation of God's name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And he says, you know, God, um, he is, I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac and Jacob. To be the God of somebody presupposes a living relationship with them. Notice that he does not say that I once was the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He says, I am theirs. Theirs, theirs. What type of pronoun is the word theirs? It's a third person possessive pronoun. I messed that up really badly in the, in the first service because it's a tongue twister. Third person possessive pronoun. Third, uh, it is a possessive pronoun. And, okay. Possessive pronouns in the English language are rather peculiar. They're, um, they're interesting animals. For instance, out in the parking lot is my car. It's a gold Ford Focus. 
my car. Uh, down the road, 30 minutes from here, is my house. What do I mean by those statements? What I, I, I means that I, I own the car, I own the house. Well, how about this? Sitting in this room is my daughter. Does that mean I own her? <laughs> Sitting in this room is my Cora. Do, do I... Do I own her? I mean, how dare you use the possessive pronoun and talk about another human being as if you owned them? The answer is, of course, normally the possessive pronoun refers to ownership. But when you use a possessive pronoun with with the subject being a person, it's not a statement of ownership at all. What is it a statement of? It's a statement of a deep, intimate relationship which exists between the two. If you happen to overhear me talking about my dear Aaron or, or my son Kaya, it's, it's because there is this mutual giving, this self-giving of, of love that's going on. Same thing is true with, with apostrophe S's. If I say Brad's car, Brad's home, that means ownership. If I say Brad's Aletheia, that means that we are each other's. Where am I going with all of this? this long, lengthy grammar lesson. Um, I believe it is astounding God chooses to reveal himself to be known by the name that he has chosen to be known. Throughout the Bible, God is perfectly content with being known as an apostrophe S's God. He's perfectly content by being known as Abraham's God, Isaac's God, Jacob's God. He says things like the possessive pronoun, your, I am your God. It almost sounds like to the naked ear, if I was a native French speaker, I might think, that's weird. Do they own God? No. No, what we have is this, this covenant relationship, this intimate giving of himself and being willing to be say, to have it said, uh, I am Brad's God. Uh, it's astounding. I don't, maybe I'm not doing a good job of communicating it, but I think it's astounding that God would choose to be known in this way. The other thing that I think is astounding and it's kind of implied in verse 37 is that this relationship, if God goes into a possessive, personal, mutual, self-giving relationship with the subject, this relationship always stays in the present tense and never reverts to the past. What do I mean by that? Always stays in the present tense, never reverts to the past. When, when you and I really love somebody, the greatest horror we can experience is to have that relationship go into the past tense. There's, there's nobody wants to ever have to say that I had a son. No, we want to say I have a son. You never want to say I had a daughter You never want to say, I had a spouse. You never want to say, I had a friend. Because when you love someone, you don't want that relationship to ever go into the past tense. Does that make sense? And yet we can't help it because we're mortal. And and every single one of our relationship goes, every one of them goes into the past tense except for for one. This is what's so wonderful. He is the God of the living and not the dead. If he enters into a 
possessive relationship of self-giving love, that relationship never, it never becomes, I once was Brad's God. I once was uh, your God. I, I, oh, I am. The love of Jesus Christ is too strong to allow things to fade to black. It will never be said, I, I, once, was, I once was Anya's. No, he won't let the grave, he will not let the grave swallow us. If he says, I will be known as yours, it is always and forever yours. And of course, if it's always and forever yours with him, then it's always and forever uh, us together too. We, we always and forever have, have each other. <laughs> All right, to conclude, listen to how one author puts it. He says, say, in the resurrection, there's no marriage. There's, there's no sex. The, the, great, the greatest erotic sense of closeness and oneness that we experience on the, in this life is, is our sexual relationships. And yet that will, be, that will seem like a, a dew drop compared to an a, atomic bomb. The love that we will have with one another and with the Lord is going to make the greatest friendships and the greatest married sex look like nothing by comparison, like a, a dew drop compared to an atomic bomb. That's the kind of love we're... That's the kind of life we are headed towards. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Jesus says that heaven is going to be a world of love so incredibly powerful. Uh, Marriage is not going to become obsolete in the sense that our our love lives are going to be less. No, it's going to be so much more. God's power and God's faithfulness will go vastly beyond, vastly beyond and, and shatter our wildest dreams Because we serve a God who is the God of living, the God of the living and not the dead. Amen.